Hey everyone, what's going on? My name is Stephanie Graham. I'm an artist and filmmaker, and I'm also an extremely curious person. Some will go as far as to say that I am nosy as the, the nerve. <laughs> I started this podcast because I wanted to interview people. I'm not just talking to anyone either. I'm talking to people who are in the thick of what they do. I want to know how they live their life and how they get things done so that I could apply some of their savvy to my own life. I'm sharing this with you so that you too can do the same. We can do it together. We all gotta start somewhere, and if you're not looking for practical info, stick around anyway, because my guests are fascinating, and it's my goal to get to the bottom of their sh. I mean, aren't we all just a little bit curious of what it's like to live someone else's life? And if we do it the same? There are also times when I will feel called to catch up with you one-on-one and let you know about what's going on with me, either in life or with my art practice. You didn't think I'd get the dirt on all these cool people and not let you know what's going on with me, did you? I mean, I'm a Libra. We believe in balance. Listen, I am a big believer that even though we are all different, we can still find ways to relate to each other. It's time to get down to business, so welcome to the Nosy AF Podcast. Y'all, I gotta tell you something. Well, first of all, welcome back to my show, to the show. Um, you guys, it is a wild, wild west out here in my life right now. Can I just tell y'all that? The writers and the actors are still on strike. I can't believe it. This has been going on since May of 2023. It is August 29th when I'm recording this of 2023. And it is getting wild out here. I'm really starting to think like, I need another gig. I need another income stream that is completely separate from art and film. Something else. I've already told y'all I dream of having a grocery store. I also want a coffee shop. And now I want a laundromat. Yeah, I want a laundromat now. And while these things aren't like get the bag right away, it's just something different. And as I've been thinking, like, I can't trust you right now, art. Like, I am not happy with art. I'm not happy with film. And I know, I know we all should be really mad at capitalism. But I'm just like, ugh, dude, this is like, it's really been a mind F. Okay? I don't want to say the word. I just want to say a mind F. You know, there's this YouTuber, Kempire, who I love. He always, like, recaps pop culture and the reality shows. And he called someone the other day, mother, father, you know, instead of saying the MF word. And I love that. I love cheesy stuff like that. So I'm going to start saying mother, father <laughs> instead of MF. I just think mother, father is just so ridiculous. And I love it. I love it so much. It makes me giggle. But I don't know. My mind is like spinning just with this strike. It's like it's the middle of August. It's very sluggish. Then there's a strike. And I'm just like... What am I doing? I do have good news, though. I have another residency with the Chicago Art Department in Chicago here. I will be there for a year. So I'm excited about that. But even going to that, I've been standing in my little studio like, what am I doing here? <laughs> I will charge it to August and I will charge it to the strike. So please pray for filmmakers. Um, I hope that these uh, writers and these actors figure it out 
and they get what they want because they deserve it, you know? But enough about me. Let's talk about today's show. So I'm excited because this conversation I did with two people, like I'm stepping up my game here, folks, okay? Two people. So for this conversation, I'm joined by two immensely talented individuals, Susanna Papish and Melissa Potter. And let me tell you about them because they are the bomb.com. So Susanna Papish is a renowned Chicago-based artist, curator, and writer. And she is the brilliant mind behind Boundary, which is a artist-run space in Beverly, which is a neighborhood in Chicago. And she's always having exhibitions there. I've had the opportunity to show there. I've had friends with opportunities to show there. I just go off. I don't know the artist because it's such a wonderful space. You should check it out. And I will put the link in the show note. But anyway, Boundary is like a visual arts project space. And she's exhibited extensively in the Chicago area. And she's been recognized, you know, for her own artwork and her own achievement, you know, with numerous grants for profound contributions to the art world. And then on the other hand, we also have Melissa Potter, who's an interdisciplinary artist, and she spotlights endangered women's practice amidst our global climate crisis. Dope, right? Like, I don't really, I, I look to like folks like Melissa and like the global folks, like to tell me what we're doing wrong with the planet. I don't really seek that stuff out myself, which I know I should, it's bad, but um, she has an impressive portfolio too. And it's found its home in galleries and film festivals all over the world. And besides teaching at Columbia College Chicago, Melissa has continuously created and championed for women's narratives. And so today, Melissa and Susanna, they teamed up, okay? And they've embarked on this journey, culminating in the creation of Invisible Labors. And Invisible Labors is an artist book. And they, you know, this like artist book that they made, it's like steeped in history and heart and explores the land rich of tapestry and it's intertwined with stories of female landkeepers and stewards of the past. And it's like Potawatomi basket weavers all the way to like remarkable artists and educators like Louise Barrick and the Kellogg sisters. You know, this project of theirs, Invisible Labors, it highlights the essence of their unseen contributions of these ladies of the Ridge area in its earlier days. So it's dope. And so today in this conversation, we're going to dive deep into their inspiration, how they got together through this garden project that ended up birthing this project, and the layers of the history, art, and culture sewn within its pages. It's so cool. So please sit back and enjoy this wonderful journey of discovery, legacy, and the invisible labors that shape our world. I hope you enjoy it. We have Melissa Potter here and Susanna Papish. And maybe you each could tell me like how you even became an artist. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a deep question. Deep yeah, pot. like how did you even get to it? Just like in a short form, as short as you can. Mel? Well, mine's easy and not all that interesting. There are a lot of artists in my family. So I was always around art and I was always around people crazy enough to think that they could make a li or life in art. So I don't even remember a moment of choosing. It was like kind of always there. Plus, I was a very crappy student. So, you know, like I, I gravitated to things that were kind of on the fringe of the regular STEM stuff. So 
Oh, wow. So it just sort of like flowed for you? Like you just flowed into yeah. having an art? Wow. Did you go to art school? I did, yeah. But my mom was the one who put me in art classes from the time I was like six. And I basically didn't stop. And then, yeah, I, I went to art school, both undergraduate and graduate. So, hmm. That's cool. It's like some people have families who's lawyers and your family's artists. No, we don't make a lot of money, but we've got interesting people. Susan's yeah. got interesting people in her family, too. There are a lot of like creatives and, and people who write and, and do interesting things. Hmm. That's awesome. Suzanne, how did you get into art then? I was a late bloomer, actually, kind of the opposite, I guess. I I always took, well, my parents took me to the Art Institute like all the time when I was a kid. And we did all those family programs that they still have. And I just, when my mom worked downtown, I would have to pick my brothers up from school and we would take the bus and her job was right across from the Art Institute. And mm -hmm. it was still free then, if you can believe that. And we would just like walk around in there till my mom got off work. So that was one thing. I did not go to art. I went to UIC, University of Illinois at Chicago, and I did art history there. My parents always encouraged art, but more on the kind of academic side. And I did art history, and then I started taking classes at SAIC after I graduated from UIC, actually, because I worked there, and I could take free classes. So I started taking painting classes, and yeah, and that was it. I went down the road of, you know, the poor artist. So, <laughs> And I think that my parents never really, like, they knew I was a painter, but it was never like they would identify me as an artist. It was kind of odd, but they were just always more academically minded. And like Mel said, you know, my dad's side of the family is very literary. So they're more writers and educators. And so I think being an actual creative person was sort of a step like beyond what is kind of the expectation, I guess. So everybody's sort of like fascinated that I still do it, I think. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, that is cool that you still do it. So many people stop like making art, I've noticed. Like, especially like in my like nine to five, like people, they'll start out to like be filmmakers and then they'll just stop. And then when they hear of someone that is taking their film to a festival or like I'm going to like an art show. They're like, wow, you still still do that? It's like, yeah. <laughs> and one time, because my family, because it sounds like both y'all's family is like pretty supportive of the arts. Mine too. My aunt has a hair salon and one of her clients was like found out when I was in film school. She's like, oh, I was, I've always wanted to do that. But my mom said no. And her mom was like, yeah, because you can't make any money in that. And like changed her kids, did, like said no. And like the girl was in school for like accounting or something. I was just like, it just, I had never heard of that. Like I couldn't believe like her mom did that. Yeah, my, my parents didn't meddle. 
nobody meddled in my life. The other thing too is maybe it's generational, but there was no chance to move home. There was just like the basic expectation that 18 chow, my mom's last words out the door to college were don't bring your laundry home. <laughs> and literally, and then, you know, it was like, so I don't know. I always had that sense that I was going to have to gig it. So I've been gigging since I was 11 years old, you know, like yeah. gigging at work. So, so yeah, I, I would never change my child's degree, but at the same time, you got to like, you got to have some tenacity to be able to, to survive. Yeah. I know a lot of my older like generation above me, teachers would always talk about not wanting their kids to be artists. Like it's such a hard life for a parent artist. And I think they probably worry that the kids will be dependent because they are so much more dependent now. But I, you know, Melissa and I are pretty much the same age. And it was like that for me too. It was like, Bye. <laughs> like I left and I knew, so, I mean, I knew a lot of people who went home and for the summers, but most people like, you know, unless they were in grad school after, right after college, I knew a lot of people who just never moved back home. So, but obviously that's so different now. So. Yeah. It still seems like a good idea. Like, to I move think if back I was home. to have no, no, if I was to have a kid, I'd be like, bye. Oh, like, don't, yeah, this is not like this isn't your home anymore. <laughs> 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 For my audience, can you each describe your art practices to them? So, sure, I'll, Susanna first. Yeah, I'll go. Let's see. Well, I'm a painter and I have been doing that for. At, well, almost 30 years, I guess I'd say, dating myself now. And I, in 2017, I started a gallery called Boundary. It's in my garage. It's a nice garage, I would say. It is. <laughs> and so I've been curating. I've done some writing. And then my most recent project is with Melissa, which is why we're here today. So yeah. Cool, Melissa. Partly why we're here yeah. today. Yeah. <laughs> because she is nosy AF. So. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I just, I'm a multidisciplinary artist. So I work in a lot of different media, but I have a lot of skills in craft and fine craft. So I have a specialty in hand paper making and artist books and certain kinds of print and weaving and things like that. So I'm super interested in lost histories of of women's practices, which are disappearing very, very fast and are totally amazing and, and great artistic material, but also a lot of kind of like social and cultural material too. So that's kind of my focus. And that brings us right into Susanna and my collaboration on our, on our book. Yeah. I'm, I'm so excited to talk about your book, Invisible Labors. It's about the women basket weavers, right? Oh, look how oh. pretty. But anyway, yeah, I brought the dummy. I brought the dummy. So <laughs> take a look at it. We have a it's, joke about the dummy. So It's yeah. small. It looks small. Is it? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's like magazine style or like a little bit. It's actually smaller. called an accordion. 
So it's got, oh. it's got signatures of, and also it goes like, you know, signet, signature, signature, and then it flips, and then it has another signature. So oh, it's, a, it's actually considered an accordion style. Okay, accordion style. Okay. Cool. How did this project come about between the two of you? Susanna, you want to tell that story? Because it was her brainchild. Yeah. <laughs> You're blaming me for this. I. It, <laughs> how did it start? Well, I invited Melissa to do the train biennial, to work on the train biennial with me. And uh, that was, almost, it was about two years ago. You came to see Joanne Ono's show here with your colleague. Drew. Yeah. And... We had never met Melissa and I had never met before. And so after she was here, I was looking into the train biennial and I looked up her work because I knew her name because I had worked at Spudnik Press. And mm. so from the paper making world, I sort of knew who she was, but not overly familiar. And I had gone to a lecture, that lecture that you were panel you were on. Mel for the the future, the what was it called? The one Magda at Columbia. Oh, where the future came from. Where yeah. the future came from. Yeah. So when I looked up Mel's work, I was like, oh, this would be perfect for terrain because she does these gardens. And I thought that could be a really cool idea. So I invited her and we she proposed a a carbon remediation garden, so which is all native plants that remediate the carbon from the atmosphere. So she wanted to plant a native garden in my front yard, and that's how that's how the garden and the the terrain biennial happened. And then after we planted the garden, I think a couple months after. I was thinking about just all of the, I had been talking to some women from the Ridge Historical Society and we started to just chat casually about all of the women in our community who had worked with gardens and farms and community kitchens like in the 18th, the 19th and 20th centuries and so I was telling Melissa about this and I remember saying we should do like a broadsheet, like a fold out broadsheet kind of thing, you know, kind of showcasing or highlighting some of these women from the community. And then we found this amazing picture. You could show the cover, Mel, <laughs> this amazing picture of... Kate Star Kellogg on her on the Kellogg family farm. And we were just like, oh my God, we have to know about this person. That picture just like killed it. So that kind of led us down the road of all this research. And we did more consulting with the Ridge Historical Society. And it was just it was crazy trying to narrow it down into what we ended up, the people we ended up focusing on. It was just, 
there were so many people. It was like a plethora. We were actually going to have, one of our ideas was to have a family tree of all of these familial connections and just women in the community who were connected to this kind of work. And we had to give that up because there were just too many people for us to, to manage. So I think that's the, the kind of trajectory, right, Mel? Yeah. And we did this project during the pandemic. So Susanna and I were tied to one another for a long time because everything was quite slowed down. But at the same time, it really deepened the research. You know, we had, we ended up making a lot of decisions as we went along about like, wait a minute, we should be writing these essays because we're the ones who've done all this research. And, and there are also communities that, you know, there's women's history is, un, is unwritten or underwritten and BIPOC women's histories are like utterly unavailable. So, you know, that was also a long struggle was, you know, trying to make this less invisible, right. You know, like to try to make it actually tell the story of all different types of women who had worked in this area. But it's a, I mean, it's a broadly crazy story. I mean, they're like paintings that are like languishing and haven't been properly inventoried. They're like plaster. There's a plaster map that they think might be broken by a, a leading, you know, woman geologist who also was an artist. There were indigenous women making black, black ash baskets in the Chicagoland area. There's only like one, really one or two images of that work. So it was, you know, I mean, it was pretty intensive in terms of the research too. It wasn't like, you know, just Google it all and great. We got a lot of content. We had to do a lot of like liaising with, as, as Susanna said, with the research and historical societies and also with private, you know, there's some really great, hilarious stories about you know, digging certain things up that really came back to people and people who had done the work of, of amplifying some of these histories and became part of the project too. So, yeah. So like some of these people are just like individuals who also had an interest in finding out about this stuff. And this, this image is of a woman named Kate Starr Kellogg who's a really important education reformer and probably a lesbian who had a partner who was a really important doctor who worked at the whole house and her great, great, I don't know if it was a niece or granddaughter, Joanne Bowie, before she died, digitized and recorded some of the collection. So we were able to get in touch with her partner. I believe it's her partner, Arthur Bowie who graciously allowed us to access these images and materials. And then through him, thanks to Joanne's work, we were able to find, and and, uh, Susanna can tell some of the story of Thomas McCormick, who's a really well-known gallerist here in Chicago, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who happened to be like basically the only purveyor of Alice Kellogg, her sister's paintings, which, you know, painted the whole blue ridge area like that region of chicago so oh wow where's the blue ridge area it's the blue island it's called the ridge it's oh the blue island there's a a glacial ridge that is that's the it's the biggest hill in the city you've driven that way okay it's right near my house when you go up the hill and that's called the ridge geographically in this area but it's a glacial ridge so 
it goes from about, and I'm, I know I'll be corrected on this by someone, but I'm pretty sure it starts, it starts around 87th street and it goes to, well, it's to blue Island, the suburb okay. of blue Island. So it stretches, it's like a long, narrow ridge that goes, so it goes all the way through Beverly, Morgan Park, and then into Blue Island. No, that, so that's why it's called The Ridge. Oh, got you. Are all the women in Invisible, are they all based in Chicago in the book? Yes. Yeah, they're all based actually in this Blue Island area. In this Blue Island area, okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's so awesome to learn more about, anytime I think of a garden, I think of me just supposed to be like outside, like picking, like, you know, like just like the basics of gardening, not necessarily it as like, as you mentioned, I think like plant practice. Mm-hmm. I think you made up that term just now, Stephanie. I dig it. <laughs> I'm going to write it down. Plant <laughs> no, I got that from you. You yeah. said that. I don't think I did, but anyway, that's a like it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Susanna was a good partner for this because one of the things that I've been finding over time is like prairies are a little bit next level. I mean, it's one thing to put, and and by the way, I am no expert. I rely on other people to figure a lot of stuff out and I'm learning and making a lot of mistakes. But I guess one of the things I learned too with Susanna with this project, you know, if it were easy, people would do it. I think a lot of people are into this idea of like prairie restoration and we're just going to throw some seeds and it's going to mm-hmm. make a garden. And actually it's hard. Are we allowed to swear? Sure. Yeah. It's hard <laughs> yeah. as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard. It's, you know, there are a lot of things are not viable. The, the conditions have to be right. The prairie takes two to three years to come to fruition in most of the cases. So it's like, it's actually really hard. So, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it is about experimentation and multi-year. I mean, you know, and again, it's not something you could just be like, okay, I put it in and now we're done, you know, but there's only 1% in the state of Illinois of prairie left. And it's our, it's our important biome for the region. Like basically all of our wildlife and, and natural order kind of like relies on prairie but this is because the midwest has been turned into agricultural land that's why it's a dust bowl right so all the prairie was taken out and stripped in order to create farms and now it's like you know basically totaled land so since it's totaled they can't we can't fix it it's just gone so this is maybe Susanna knows there are people who are soil experts like right did you ever think about that i didn't until like last week oh yeah right soil I mean, I think there are movements to try to restore soil, but a lot of it is trashed from from the way we use it. So, yikes! Yeah, soil is. I'm not an expert at all, but soil is a big deal because there's so many toxic chemicals in the soil. So, to grow plants that will be viable, you have to have the right kind of soil. Obviously, you can't have toxins in the soil. So that's part of why prairies are disappearing because of all the pesticides that are used. And so the soil is damaged from all of that. I wanted to backtrack to the the Kellogg family and their the farm. And just as we were talking about the Ridge community and the Ridge 
geographical area. So the Kellogg's had a 70 acre farm that stretched that started around what we, the little company Mary hospital, which is oh, uh -huh. at 95th in California and it stretched east of there. So 70 acres, which encompasses pretty much to the Washington Heights community as well. So all the way over to Vincennes, which Vincennes was a native trail. It's one of those angle streets that, that forms one of the earliest native trails. So their farm occupied a lot of space in this area. And they were... I know that you didn't ask about this, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. No, I want to know. So, okay. <laughs> so the Kellogg family, and again, and just to to talk about that name, they are, I think, a very distant relative of the the famous, you know, cereal owner. Oh, okay. Because I know that that cereal family is pretty. They're kind of a controversial group, but this this side or this branch of the family were distantly related. And it seems like from what we've re researched, they were a very, what they called bohemian family at the time. Mm. <laughs> they were basically like the hippies of their time. And the pictures are hilarious. The, the dad has this like crazy wild white hair that's like all over. And everybody just looks really kind of, you know, kind of unmanicured for that time. And the the Kellogg father was a homeopathic doctor and they were just very, and they were very supportive of their, their children being creative as well. So we were really interested in that idea. So that picture of Kate Starr Kellogg, she was a, a writer. She composed this really beautiful, what was called a wedding song for the, that was performed. Is that right, Mel? At the World's Columbian yeah, the Women's Congress. Yeah. yeah. At the Women's Congress. And so their family was very kind of active and supportive, but they also had this farm. So they were landkeepers and and from what we know, I, it, I think it was a sustainable farm, but I think a lot of it was just kind of like prairie as well. So, so that was well before the area was like obviously like settled. And then I think they probably gradually sold off their, their land. And just to summarize about Kate Starr, there's a school in Beverly named after her. So Kellogg School. Aww. And it's on it occupies the land that they would have owned back in the day. So, Oh, wow. That's cool. Versus like Northwestern has that Kellogg program, which is probably after the cereal people. <laughs> yeah. Right. The cereal side. I'm sure. I'm maybe, sure. But maybe not. Who knows? Huh. I love learning Chicago history. It's so cool. Well, we haven't talked really about her sister, Alice Kellogg, who was a really, I mean, she was considered the best painter of the day and spent time in, in France and taught, I believe, at SAIC and married a, a younger student at SAIC. That's where she became Tyler, not Alice Kellogg. 
but she also painted the portrait, the main portrait of Jane Addams at the Jane Addams Hull House, which is the one, if you know Jane Addams Hull House, you see it. It's her all in black. It's very dramatic. And, you know, her yeah. face, like that's by Alice. Alice also painted her lover, Mary. Well, her, yeah, her lover, her partner, Mary. And it's the same thing in, in her bedroom at Jane Addams Hull House. But she did a lot of landscape-based work, which we feature in the book, too. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. What a talented group of folks. No, you know what I want to also bet you, too? When you guys were starting, when you guys had met, you made the carbon-emitting landscape or the garden? Carbon remediation. remediating. Car- yeah. What is that? What is carbon remediating? Yeah, what I know, that? right? It's like scientific. So <laughs> I think this is pretty new scholarship, but the prairie is understood to be even a more efficient carbon container than trees. So, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but this idea that actually the plants use carbon, like they absorb carbon because they use it for their processes. And carbon is collected by root, the root systems in prairie. Part of the reason the plants take a long time to come up is because there's a lot of like sort of viral images. I mean, again, for the prairie geeks, but there are a lot of viral (laughs) images of these roots that are like 25 feet deep because the prairie really is about the stuff happening underground as much as it is happening above ground. So, oh, wow. So the carbon remediation is this idea that the prairie holds and takes out their excess carbon from the environment. But since we only have 1%, obviously, we don't, we don't have a lot happening in our natural world. Yeah, it's like, should we be having this carbon remit? I can't say carbon remediation in our in our own backyards and in our own Homes, well, and that's like, the, there's been a movement. I mean, but it's not going fast enough. Susanna can tell you some stories about gar- grass in her neighborhood, but I mean, I'm looking oh, out. Oh yes, the I window. know about those. Yeah, <laughs> I'm looking out. I'm looking out the window right now, and it's like most of the people still have grass in their front yard. They're still doing, you know, the same BS that's always been done. So it's yes, it's a conversation, but it's not like I'm seeing a lot of prairie restoration going on up here. You know? Yeah. Because I know I've seen, like, I had a neighbor because I got really inspired. So Susanna has a native garden for it at Boundary. And I was into that. And I was talking to my neighbor. And she's like, yeah, but you're going to get a lot of rats. And then that made everyone scared because, of course, no one wants rats. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't get get rats unless rats eat garbage and they eat stuff that I mean the it's more the mice you like you might see mice and squirrels I don't see any well I have three cats but <laughs> and they go outside but I don't see a lot of mice but I I get a lot of squirrels and I get birds I you know and God bless the birds but boy I have a settle settlement of birds that right outside my window at like five in the morning, just like chirping away. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. I mean, it's, it's great. <laughs> it's like, it's like a chorus every day. So yeah. Yeah. But I've had, I've, I've gone to battle. I, I get a s- seasonal, seasonal texts from my neighbors about, I have one neighbor in the fall and another neighbor in the spring. 
who complain and they want to know if there's a way they can help me, you know, clean up my yard. <laughs> so, which yeah. is so ridiculous because it's like when you see it, it's obviously it looks intentional. It doesn't look like an unkept, you know, yard. You know what I mean? Like there's a difference. <laughs> well, it does a <laughs> like little bit right funny. now, but it needs a little, <laughs> it needs some tidying up, but yeah. So you all came up with this, with this book in order to bring more awareness to these artists and look to be a prairie ground keepers. Yeah. I think that that's a good way to, to talk about them. You yeah. Know, that, that was their natural habitat. So, and their inspiration for a lot of the things that they did. So, yeah. And so when you bring it out, what do you hope to, what do you hope to share? What do you hope folks get from it? Like what action do you want them to take from it? It's a great. Question. I think it'd be great if they're like, I feel like sometimes I'm always so fascinated with like jobs people currently have or have had because it's like, you know, wouldn't it be great if, you know, some young person can like learn about soil and they like figure out a way and, you know, it's like could be like some sort of sustainable job for them or at least like a project, a passion project or something. I think one thing when I think about these women that we have highlighted, I think about actually like archival research and bringing attention to like we, you know, the title of the book, Invisible Labors, it's, it's not just, it's pointing to the garden that we planted, but it's pointing to the women that we've highlighted because their contributions have almost been lost. And they were, they did a lot in their time. I mean, they were education reformers. They were, Alice Kellogg founded the first uh, women's painting society in Chicago. The other woman that we haven't mentioned her name, but Louise Barwick, she made the map, the giant, is it, it's like 10 by 17 feet. It's crazy. And it's a plaster cast map, a relief map of the state of Illinois. And she researched, I think it went county by county and she researched each geographical zone which was mostly prairie then and she created this giant map that was displayed at the world's columbian exposition and she was 21 and we only found a picture of her standing next to the map looking very tiny <laughs> next wow. to this giant map and her she was a cartographer what's that uh, it's a, a person who studies map. Well, they create maps. They actually, oh. yeah, there are people who actually go out into the world and they create like back in the way, ba way back, like Magellan and all of those people, they were explorers, but then there would pe be people who were cartographers who would actually create the maps of the exploration. So she was a cartographer when things sorry when things were still needing to be mapped in in the state. So 
her work was was part of that and she also taught cartography and geography and drawing and oh. she wrote some she contributed to some textbooks about those subjects and then her in her downtime she was a painter so she made these really lovely paintings of the Morgan Park Beverly area before it was settled there were houses and people lived here but it was not part of the city yet so it was more rural so she Jeez. was making paintings of that so she was an, an amazing woman and she's basically undiscovered she's sort of i think mel mentioned paintings kind of languishing and these some of and her paintings are undiscovered i would say and wow. uncared for currently uncared for hey i just want to pop in here real quick to let you know that i'm an artist i make work about social class subcultures race and gender these topics are complex they're interesting and they come up in my life all the time because i love to laugh a lot of my work has humorous tones I genuinely enjoy making and creating all sorts of things. My main medium is photography and film, but I also enjoy organizing art events. I would love to keep you in the loop of everything that's going on with my art exhibition, so please consider signing up for the Studio Graham newsletter at missgram.com slash sign up. Okay, back to the top. Yeah, we didn't mention the one living person who's featured in the book, who's Kelly Church, who's a very important activist, seed saver activist, black ash basket maker. She is a Potawatomi, Anshabi, indigenous person who lives in Michigan. And we reached out to her because through through research, we found we found a really cool picture of black ash basket makers and kind of asked this question, well, were there black ash basket makers in the Chicagoland area, because the pictures were from Wisconsin, near, very close by. And she was like, absolutely. You know, I know my people were, were in that area. But when you ask also, like, you know, that's an important part of the archive. It's also important for people to know who Kelly Church is, because Kelly Church is like a one-person show, keeping her, her in intangible craft practice of her people alive. I mean, there are people who are doing it, but it's a small group. And, and that's tied to their sovereignty. It's tied to their, I mean, there are no recognized indigenous groups in Illinois, I don't believe. You know, there aren't any recognized nations, but there are some that are recognized and their craft practices are part of how they specify who they are. So that's really important work. She also has been charting the black ash tree because it's endangered. It will probably go extinct. But what makes Kelly so amazing is that she's thinking about a future where there will be no black ash tree. So what's going to happen, you know? And I think some of the book too is also about like, it's about past, but it's also about the future. You know, the, the future is already that a lot of what these women had is gone, but their legacy remains and has an opportunity to teach us something about maybe where we want to go from here, you know? Do we want to let the black ash tree go extinct? Because we're doing a really good job, if that's the case. I mean, she's it. She's done a lot of advocacy work to try to save it, but she needs teams of people in order to do that work, right? So sure, we can't be. We're you're not one people shows. Like we can think we are as artists, but that's not how life works. So yeah, that's not 
how life works. I used to think it was like a one person show, like think back about projects and stuff. I'm like, I really should ask somebody to help, help me. But when it comes up, like with all these women you're thinking of, I'm like, wow, these ladies were busy. These people have kids and husbands and wives. A really good question. N-O, right, Susanna? Yeah. Well, they had partners. Mm. Well, that, Louise Barwick didn't. From what we know, she did not have a partner and she did not have children. She lived with her family mostly. And I think once her, her, pa- her parents passed away, she lived on her own from what we could we could surmise. But one thing that was also interesting was she and Kate Star Kellogg attended the normal school. It was, and that is now Chicago State University. Oh, no it way. Was, yeah, it was located. I, I, I dug into the research on that because I was just like, what happened to this school? Like, you know, it was this, and so many women went there because mostly women were educators, so they either became teachers or nurses, I think, and or, you know, married and never worked outside the home. So the normal school, as a school of education, later became absorbed into, I think it was called Chicago State Teachers College, and then formed into Chicago State University. So that's where it was located so interesting that they were they were situated the women were living in this area but chicago state you know isn't that far from here so yeah no yeah wow yeah they so to go back no they did not have children and they were very busy they were doing things all the time Kate Star Kellogg and Alice Kellogg were involved with Hull House, Jane Addams Hull House, which, of course, when we found that out, Mel and I were just like, we're like total Hull House nerds, like <laughs> complete. What would we, what are we going to call it? Hull heads? Oh, well, <laughs> I don't know. Something yeah. <laughs> so when we found that out, we were just like going crazy just doing research into their involvement with Whole House. Lauren, Whole House is starting to come out of the closet about its lesbian history. So, you know, at the turn of the century, a lot of women associated with Whole House had women partners, whether sexual or otherwise. They were, you know, marriages of the mind or marriages of the body. It's We don't know for sure, but... In that day and age, it was a lot easier to create a camaraderie with another woman who shared your ideas about things than to be in a traditional marriage. So Kate was in a relationship with Cornelia DeBay. We know Jane Addams was involved with a woman. It should be mentioned that Kelly Church has a daughter named Cherish Parrish, who's carrying on the Black Ash Basket tradition and is a very famous Black Ash Basket maker. It's, oh, di- okay. you know, it's different, different society at the time, yeah. you know, white women were, you know, there were certain expectations about marriage and children and your relationship. In fact, you know, I hadn't put this to words yet, but the research mostly predates women's suffrage. It mostly predates women having the vote. So, you know, it's a different time for sure. 
Yeah, and like, were they openly lesbian as well, or was it like sort of like a kept secret? I don't think well, probably anyone... not like walking down the street holding hands, but just sort of <laughs> like. <laughs> well, they. I mean, Kate Star Kellogg and Cornelia DeBay lived together for thirty some mm. years, so yeah, they were lifelong partners. Again, Louise Barwick, we don't know, and Alice Kellogg was married. She died very young of renal disease. Wow. <laughs> that seemed to be like. It's not funny. We're just, we're laughing. It's not there funny. Was, yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah, we know it's not. Yeah, yeah, no. No, no, there were so many <laughs> research things. I should, yeah, yeah, yeah we should. No, I should qualify that with, it seemed to be brought up quite often in our research. And mostly when you read that people died, it's not really mentioned what they died of, but. It seemed to be a very specific highlight. I'm not sure why. Anyway, yeah, she died very young. She was 38 when she wow. passed. Wow. Yeah. And she did so much in her life. Yeah. These people like doing the stuff that like make him at 21 and I'm just like I know. Laid, up, laid up over at somebody's house probably. <laughs> Some <laughs> party. <laughs> but, yeah, just like <laughs> watching him so TV. I know, right? Like eating frozen pizza. Just like whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's awesome that like all these women, you know, used their use each other's like as their networks and y'all are collaborating as well, like for this project. It's like you're like a part of their legacy. Can you all talk about like how collaboration is a part of your practice? Because I know like Susanna, you have boundary and then Melissa you have the different feminist practice. Like you, we work together with that panel, like convention type thing. And then you'll be collaborative with other folks as well. So could you talk about like collaboration in your practice? Cause it also seems to be like a super, I don't, since I am a Chicago artist, I might not necessarily know like other art markets, but collaboration seems to be like such a big deal. Here, like it's like collaboration artists like they have to collaborate together and they also have to have like an art space like it's like you you do all the things as a Chicago artist so I'm just curious how y'all see that I think it's interesting because I know what you're saying Stephanie and I'm from here so I think Melissa has a different view of or a supplementary or complementary view but i can speak to just coming up in the 90s and seeing all of the alternative spaces that were i went to and experienced and it was just part of the fabric of what chicago was doing and always has done as far as you know Looking back on the past, I mean, Gertrude Abercrombie was a pretty well-known painter, and she hosted the salons, as they were called, and all the, you know, famous artists and people visiting Chicago would go there and, you know, you know, col not collaborate, but, you know, probably socialize like people do when they come here. So Chicago, I think, has had a rich history with these kind of these kinds of spaces, and then collaborative work. I think the term social practice has come up a lot in the last, I'd say, like 20 years-ish. Before that, 
you know, it was, we did, I think it was more collaborative spaces and I don't know if social practice was really part of the, the thing as much as what we think of that now. But it seems like, yeah, in the last, I'd say, 20 years, it's definitely become more of a kind of recognized form in the art world. Like, I think that public art and social art was like more of that, like, plop a sculpture down and here's public art kind of thing. <laughs> and now it's, <laughs> and now it's more about, an interaction or an event or a collaboration or, you know, things like that. So that's, that's different and interesting. So I think Chicago, there's a, there's a history and going back to Hull House, there's, you know, a history of Jane Adams and the, the whole Hull House crew. They were known for doing lots of creative work because people spoke different languages and they didn't necessarily speak English. So there was a lot, there was a big focus on that's where improv came from, mm -hmm. you know, not knowing a language, but being able to act out something like charades kind of, but this new form. And they also hosted, you know, creative workshops for children and, you know, early kinds of daycare things that involved art and domesticity. So I think, you know, that's going way back to the 19th century. So I would say all of this is kind of a thread that's continued on. And the social practice thing, I mean, that directly connects to Hull House. That's basically what they were doing, but not called social practice. Yeah. I mean, there's a dark side to collaboration, which is that I mean, I love it because I think, I mean, I think all of us are like this. I like learning from people. Like I want my practice not to just make objects. I want to learn something different every time I embark. And boy, did Suzanne and I learn a lot. <laughs> Both, you yeah. know, like in terms of structure and research and all of that. But collaboration is not rewarded. So I'm just going to say like, I feel like I've paid a very heavy price for being a collaborator. I believe in it. I think it's a class issue to some degree. I think that you have to be really wealthy to be able to do everything on your own. And if you are just a normal person with a job and trying to do art, it's, you can move mountains by working with other people. And so I think that the art world really looks down on collaboration. I mean, a lot of the funders won't fund collaborating groups. So, you know, I mean, I, I think it's that's a whole other conversation, like, you know, because, yeah, I mean, I even have people who tell me, like, stop collaborating. Like, it's ridiculous. But anyway, I, I don't I don't think it's all like sunshine and roses, Chicago style with collaboration, the way the art world sees collaboration. So, yeah, I would I would agree with that. And but I would also say that part of the the surge in social practice has created like how three walls changed into what they are now. Three walls was, I don't know if you all remember, but they were kind of a non for, they were a non for profit, but it was more focused on individual art making and fellowships and things like that. I mean, it was great. They had this really great 
library program that they did, a little library. And then they completely changed into an organization that began to support BIPOC people and mar more marginalized groups. So I'd say they're really advocating for groups for collaboration and the three arts, of course. Mm -hmm. The three yeah. arts is definitely in that corner. But yeah, I mean, I think Mel's right, though. I think that these are, you know, non-for-profit entities. They're not about making artists rich or trying to have a gallery or anything like that. It's more about how you're giving back to community, but that's seen as like, well, we're not going to like, you're not going to like make a living from that, you know? So it is definitely a very distinct kind of line in the art world, I think, that you walk when you're doing collaborative work. So, yeah. And how did y'all figure, like, divide the, the work? It's a really good question. So I always Wait. think, have you seen, have you seen that meme that like shows the group project and it's, I can't think of what movie it's from, but it's like one guy who's like the guy who shows up like right at the end for like just in time for the presentation. And it shows like the other two who like really have been like meeting up doing stuff, like maybe like one person who like put everything together, like in a pretty presentation. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, it's funny. My, my son and I joke about that because he he goes to an all boys school, and whenever there's a group project, he's just like, "Oh my god!" Like, there's he's <laughs> the heavy lifter, you know. Like he's yeah. like, I know that I'm just gonna be, you know. He did a project with people, and no one did anything, and then they all showed up on the day, and like. They had done stuff, but nobody communicated about what they had done. Oh, it was so annoying. <laughs> I I think students hate group projects, but you really do learn. And it's more what you learn about humans than the actual project, I think. I mean, yeah. good collaboration is about being fair. It's about mm -hmm. fairness. And I don't know. I mean, I think Susanna and I were very fair with each other about like, okay, well, I got to pick this big part up and you're going to pick that part up. And yeah. we met all the time and we, we texted a lot. I felt like our, our texts were, you know, kind of this long, hilarious, wandering conversation that were project, a little gossip, you know, a little bit of like, you know, this, that, and the other, and then bring it back to the project. I think that that like humanized things so it wasn't like mechanical project all the time oh yeah it was a lot of gossip yes it was a <laughs> lot of gossip but i just I, I think like i think that good collaborators are people who are fair by nature yeah and how i feel about it and i think the people who are bad collaborators are people who are like bad administrators they just don't give a shit like they basically yeah. aren't worried about other people so yeah you want know, to do you want to be in but i think that Susanna, probably because of your gallery, knows how to pick good people. And I've only had one collaboration go off the tracks because I have spidey sense about what's going to work. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so mm -hmm. that was probably a good, a good pairing in that way, too. Well, Mel always said she was the, what did you call it? The nuclear 
She always oh, yeah. like we've got totally different personalities. Yes, I'm the I'm the nuclear war preparator. I'm always <laughs> the worst scenario and backwards. She's a prep prepper. I'm a prepper, and then <laughs> Susanna's the slow burn. She's like, all right, let's rein it in, let's rein it in. But then she'll totally play a bad cop at the end when it's necessary. So you know, if you, like if you push Susanna the others, yeah. well, by that time I'm spent, right? So yeah. by that time I'm like, I'm already spent. Anyway, so yes, we were a very good <laughs> partner that way. I'm like, this isn't going to work. It's all going to fall apart. And uh, oh, Susanna that's awesome. Had to cool. Yeah. yeah. And then like, I think too, like when you're collaborating, like, yeah, it is about fairness, but like also so much about trust because gossip mm-hmm. does come with collaboration. Because I feel like you'll start to be with people so much that like other stuff happens and stuff. And oh, like, yeah. you'll need totally. to vent about it and you just need to, yeah. Just yeah. need to like be like a safe space in that part as well. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think Susanna and I could destroy each other's careers in one fell swoop if we ever like published that text thread. <laughs> <laughs> Things were said. Yeah. I don't think yeah. I've ever deleted it. Like I haven't deleted it. <laughs> it's like no. Yeah. Don't it's delete it. I'd have to redact it though. Go back and redact it. Oh yeah, we'd have a lot of redact a lot of a lot of memes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome that is awesome oh but my as gosh. far as like dividing the work i think i mean it it kind of happened i think kind of organically i mean we but yeah i think we were pretty i mean we both in terms of our work ethic i think even though we have really different personalities i think our work ethic is the same like mm-hmm. we it's not like one of us is just going to drop the ball. Like, I know we're going to do it, even though Melissa would was like, this isn't going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, we're going to do it. We're going to make it happen. It's going to happen. So, yeah. And we also have similar senses of humor, too. Okay. Yeah, that's very important. That's important. Yeah. Yeah. It's super Definitely. important. Yeah, it's like any good relationship, you know. Sure. Yeah, no, that's important. It's important to be able to get along in all sorts of, that's especially during the pandemic. I mean, really, that's especially yeah. important with the, sh- the shut-in or yeah. shut-down, whatever they called it. You know, the shut-in. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we became, so. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, Melissa, I want to talk to you about your project, The Feminist Seed Bank. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, can you tell us like more about that? Yeah, well, it's a it's adjacent, and yeah. you know, it's an extension of like basically a lifetime or a whole career's worth of research on women's practices and the ways that someone like Kelly Church is a great example. The way her practice tells a story of climate change, and there's a lot of loss of of heritage practice happening, and. And so I've started a project with Monuments to Movements, which is Jane Sachs and Nisa Page-Lieberman, who are here in Chicago. And we are trying to build like a knowledge bank, basically, of all these practices that are disappearing. And it's very exciting. I mean, we've got partners all over the world. And we just did a an interview with a Kyrgyzstani grass doll maker, who, and they're used for rituals. So that kind of stuff. Oh, okay. Try, we want to interview some voodoo voodoo doll makers. But it's really, ha- it's centered on women's practices. I think women's practices 
all women of all races all over the world are erased. And so this project like Invisible Labors is for me about bringing those people to life and telling those stories. So, yeah, this work is so important because it makes me think of there's another program. And I feel like I research all these programs. I can't keep keep track, but it's like they write Wikipedia pages for artists. Oh, mm. oh, is that Black yeah. Lunch Table did that for a while? Maybe it's Black Lunch Table. Yes. Yeah. Her name is Gina Valentine, and she was doing it as part of, there was an earlier project called like Art and Feminism or something like that. Yes, Art and Feminism was doing Black, it, yeah. But Black Lunch Table yeah. did it for Where the Future Came From, and that's Gina Valentine's mm-hmm. one of the people, and she's over at SAIC. Yeah, that's great. That <laughs> seems like this yeah. kind of thing, too. It's like you're doing this for the future so that folks mm-hmm. can have like, you know, something to look at, something to research and have a thing to go to and that these people's hard work isn't, you know, in vain, right? Like it's like, yeah, it could be celebrated. Oh, that's so that's sweet. It's context. like, that's a good context. I hope that they, yeah. you know, are in heaven looking down like, Oh, look at them writing about me. They probably <laughs> feel so special. So sweet. They're <laughs> 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 like, what? Well, like, who is that? We don't know them, like, looking from heaven down. <laughs> who is that lady writing about me? <laughs> who she gossiping about, yeah. you Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, wonder, like, do you all, like, have any sort of tips for someone that's, like, it's just, like, a city dweller? Like, I mean, we know climate crisis is, like, a big deal, but... Like, what do you have any like tips that you might have like learned through these practice, like through these women's practices of how to be better, how to be better caretakers of this in, of the world <laughs> of like, yeah, of the environment outside of just like recycling? <laughs> I think it's. I mean, I've been reading this book that's thrown me into a complete existential crisis about the environment. It's called Worn, and it's a history of textiles, textile labor and creation. And I would say for for city dwellers, it's difficult. It's, I mean, in the United States, we're so privileged. And this fast fashion thing, the clothing, the textile industry is responsible for about a third of our greenhouse gases and environmental crisis. I think what I've been thinking about a lot lately is just not buying new clothes. (laughs) Because when you go to these stores, you know, Target and all these big box stores, when I after reading this book, I realized all of these clothes are made by mostly by women, mostly in unregulated working conditions. They're basically, I mean, there's some places that are, I want to say they're almost like concentration camps because these women are sent there before marriage to just work for their dowry for a few years. And then they're just living there doing whatever kind of you know, dyeing or textile work needs to be done. And then they have their dowry, then they get married. And, you know, these are the things that we exploit 
we exploit this labor, we exploit the environment in these places, like in India, the the Uyghur population, all of these places in, well, and then in Southeast Asia, Thailand, Vietnam, you know, all of these places, these people, mostly women are exploited. And so I think now what I'm thinking about is just not buying new clothes, like the clothes that we have are like the clothes that are being made are full of plastic too. So that's another thing. Um, Yeah. I mean, anything that is stretchy is plastic, but that, (laughs) I know, I know, I know it through. I just, I'm telling you, it really made me think about all of this stuff. So that would be my tip is. Okay. To not buy new clothes. new clothes. I think that's genius. What? Thanks for sharing all that. Because that book, I got to put that on my my read list. But just um, be ready to be really depressed. I was going to say I need to be in the right headspace for it, but I can't think <laughs> of anything better than that. That's and that's something that anybody can choose to do, right? Yeah, choose to do that. You know, I mean, there food is a little more complicated especially like what we know in Chicagoland about food deserts. I mean, that's those kinds of conversations are, I used to be a real hardline vegetarian until I kind of understood a little more about the impacts of food desert and the, the availability of food. Right. But clothing is something that most of us can make, make a change. You know, there are a lot of awesome thrift shops in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And not to do a plug, but I do love me some Poshmark. So I'm <laughs> a Poshmark. It's a store online to you know, get to recycle your own clothes and yeah. to get stuff that's new to you. Right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. And when my cousin was looking for work, Poshmark kept her like employed almost. Yeah. You know, she was like getting rid of stuff and yeah. You know, swapping stuff out and yeah, it's like mm-hmm. such a great, such a great resource. You can get lost. Yeah, I know. You're about to yeah. make me re-download the app because yeah. before I was like, I'm Do not it. spending, but Do it was more so like a like a not buying anything thing for like saving money. But I'm like, you're right. It's like might as well see what's on there before. Well, I just I, I make myself do like if I want to buy something, I have to sell something. Sometimes yeah. I get, you know, sometimes I do my impulse buys, but mostly I try to like sell. Then, it, then the money goes into the account and I buy something. So, yeah, I have like twenty things in my basket right now. <laughs> <laughs> Poshmark. Oh my gosh! Oh, Poshmark is getting some really good pre. Yeah, they are. What I have to say, <laughs> eBay. There's like lots of places, but yeah, I mean, just to yeah, I think. Clothing is is important, and just in what you were saying about food too, Mel. It's like I think it's great they're doing all of these urban, like they're trying to plant on the south side, you know, more of these urban gardens. But to go back to the soil, it's like I hope the soil is being tested because some of those places, it's like I, I don't think I'd want to eat food coming from some of those, some of that soil. That's a you know where these gardens are being planted. Agree. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, and that's the thing. It's like, there's so much like, I mean, maybe the people with the community gardens, they know, I do not know. So like, mm-hmm. if I want to start a garden, I might just go to Home Depot and just buy whatever, you know, like I really have no idea what I'm doing. 
Mm-hmm. So there needs to be like yeah. more information around that, especially like nowadays people are like, oh yeah, start to grow your own food and all that kind of stuff. Like, like learning from our conversations, just not that simple. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah. It's really true. I'm sure the people who are doing these gardens, I mean, I want to sound like they don't know what they're doing. I mean, I just, <laughs> you know, it's like, it is a concern though. I mean, it's like, it's hard to get that stuff out of the soil, you know? So, but I, I mean, props to the people who are doing it. And I hope like, you know, the vegetables can go to those communities that need it. Yeah. And there's the community fridges too, which are really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those oh yeah. Really cool too. Yeah. yeah. The love that people can just go up. Yeah. The love fridge. There's a couple. One of them had like fresh mozzarella. I was like, oh, I'm go wow. home and make some pesto. Wow. Yeah, people just putting all sorts of stuff in there. Let's <laughs> get <laughs> some fresh mozzarella. I know, right? I just get mine at Aldi. Oh, nice. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, wow. Shout out to Aldi. I know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, this well, is hey. The product plug placement section of the podcast, I guess. I know, right? Well, this has been such a great conversation thus far. Is there anything else y'all want to mention before we call this complete? Yeah, I want to mention that I love your work and I love your style and I love your participation at Boundary and I love your that we meet up at events and you're awesome and a big part of my Chicagoland vibe. So I oh, am thank very you grateful so much for you. Yeah, very grateful. Yeah. And I'm grateful that Susanna, you know, put you in the show so that I can, I could be like reintroduced to you and run into you again after this shitty long pandemic. So yeah, no kidding. I yeah. know. I'm so happy too. Yeah. Do you hear so my aggressive too. cat, by the way? Just wondering if he's being picked up. He's I pissed. don't. Is he really? Oh man, you're going to get hour, it. Like, I mean, he is. He's pissed. like enough of this. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I want to say, well, I'll echo what Mel said. And I thought, yeah, your piece last year was so fan The Golden Children piece. I just loved it. And I'm grateful that, you know, I think you're out of all of the artists, like the artists I keep in touch with, like definitely one of the few. Oh, you know? that's so nice. Yeah. yeah. We talk. I know. It's like when yeah. you guys are talking about your text message, I'm like, oh, God, I would hate. No, I don't want anybody to see our text either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but I'm so thankful for you for putting me in boundary and keeping me like you guys are both so inspirational in like being more like smarter about the way that I approach my work, especially like having like a academic back to it an academic meaning like learning component to it outside of just something being like art for entertainment or art for fun, but putting like, you know, more like learning behind it. Cause it's like, yeah, after you see this and you get all these thoughts, then what, you know, it's like, you want to be able to have something to go to. And mm-hmm. so I think that's so important. And then also just boundaries, just like, I just love like that space. It truly is beautiful. Like if y'all that are listening, get a chance to see it. It's such like, a beautiful space. Thank you. You know, yeah. cause I've seen like other folks that have tried to do like, or they have, you know, other spaces and it could just like be like wherever. I don't want to say too much to like get myself in trouble. Somebody's gonna be like, Oh, she's talking about my place. Oh, hell no. Try to like fight me. <laughs> 
<laughs> but they just it feel like, like it's so much thought. Yeah, it's so much. It's so much thought put in there, and then always like the artist. It's always so so cool, and it's awesome. It's like giving space to you know artists, and then also like to the south side too. You know, because I feel like people. Yeah. I feel like some folks might think like, oh yeah, there's no art past like Hyde Park. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's not true. And that's not right, you know? So, but you can at least like point to something like that they can actually like access right then and there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. When they made that map for artists run Chicago, it was like, there was this cluster and then there was like boundary, like way down. <laughs> it was like, it looks like a little satellite, like way awesome. at the bottom. <laughs> you had to zoom out. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for saying all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you all for being a part of this conversation. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Enjoy, me- enjoy the seals and the icebergs. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning into the Nosy AF podcast with me, your host, your friend, Stephanie Graham. I'm so glad that you made it to the end of this conversation. Please kindly let me know what you thought by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you're listening right now. You can also connect with me at nosyaf.com via the Say Hello button. And if you're curious about what's going on in my art and film life, please visit my website at missgram.com. Oh, and also, if there is someone that you're nosy about and you want me to have them on the show, please send suggestions via the same hello button and I will check them out. Until next time, thank you so much for being you and see you soon. Peace.